Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. It's become a sort of modern refrain. You hear this from people all the time. I have ADD. I don't think they mean, in many cases, I don't think they mean that they actually have a diagnosis, but they, you know, we we often just feel completely attentionally challenged, pulled in a million directions because of technology, the pace of modern life, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, some of us do actually have ADHD or ADD um, diagnosed or undiagnosed, um, including several people in my life. Um. So, so what do you what do you do if if uh, if you have this condition? Well, we've got an, an incredible expert uh, who has suffered with it herself and uh, treats people uh, who are dealing with it and can talk about attentional issues uh, as well for the for the rest of us. Stephanie Sarkis is her name, and uh, you're going to hear a lot from her coming up. First, though, one item of business, and then your voicemails. So, the business I have spent. Uh, much of the last few hours toggling back and forth between observing Kanye West's new album and watching the amazing new videos for uh, the new course on the 10% Happier app. We've got this new course up. It's, uh, I have, in my opinion, one of, if not the best courses uh, we've ever done. Uh, it takes... All of these never-before-seen behind-the-scenes moments from the meditation tour that Jeff Warren and I did not long ago where we crossed the country in a big silly bus and met all sorts of wannabe meditators and talked to, to them about um, about uh, their challenges. And it, so it takes all of this great behind-the-scenes footage that we've never released and also pairs it with incredibly useful teaching uh, on all sorts of issues uh, from uh, how to establish uh, healthy habits, which is a huge problem for people who are dealing with, you know, who want to set up a meditation habit for uh, finding time in your life to meditate. Um, if you're a, a new parent, uh, creativity, uh, dealing with the stress of, of, of being overly scheduled, busyness, um, and also, I, there are some really intimate and somewhat embarrassing moments where I talk about some of my own inner demons. Uh, so uh, I, I'm just really proud of the team who put this together. I love this course. It's it's really great. And um, you can find it on the 10% Happier app if you're a subscriber. And if you're not, well, think about it. All right, that's the business. Uh, on now to voicemails. And before we do the voicemails, here's my usual caveat, which is that I am not a meditation teacher, nor a nor am I a uh, mental health professional, nor have I heard these uh, um, voicemails in advance. Um, so I just do my best to answer as a journalist and fellow rank-and-file meditator. Uh, so here we go. Here's voicemail number one. Hi, Dan. This is Ellen calling from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for the work that you do. I recently started meditating and have found your podcast and all of your conversations with guests so enlightening. My question is, um, in your experience with battling depression or anxiety, um, if you have found the process of cognitive behavioral therapy helpful, how do you balance going through your day and identifying when to just note and be mindful of the thoughts that are going through your head versus using CBT and um, really taking the time to stop and analyze those thoughts and challenge the negative assumptions behind them? Thanks so much. Bye. So cognitive behavioral therapy for those who, for the uninitiated, is a type of I think I'm saying this correctly. It's a type of psychotherapy. It's a type of mental health treatment. Um, I have not really done it, uh, so I'm not really well equipped to um, talk about it in detail. But I think I can generally speaking answer your question, which is if I, I think I'm going to try to restate it, and hopefully I'm doing so correctly. What is the, you know in 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 a meditation practice you are noting your thoughts non-judgmentally and letting them go. So you might note, 
you might have a flurry of self-judgment. I have a lot of that in my practice. You know, you suck at this. How come you can't stay with the breath? Why are you so sleepy? Blah, blah, blah. And so you might note it as judgment and then let it go. That's generally how meditation practice is taught. In CBT and in traditional therapy, you're encouraged to really analyze the thoughts, which is a, you know, I think a sort of very much related to mindfulness and and it can be powered by mindfulness, but it also employs a part of the brain that in meditation we're not emphasizing so much, which is analysis. In meditation, we're emphasizing, at least as in my experience, we're emphasizing uh, just sort of the the raw data of your senses as opposed to getting stuck in, in uh, and even that term I just said, getting stuck in uh, your thinking processes. So I actually think the, the answer for me, walking around in my daily life when I'm off the cushion, so to speak, is not that complicated, which is, you know, in actual meditation, I'm probably not going to do a lot of analyzing of the type of thinking I'm doing. Maybe I will. Maybe if something, you know, a really seemingly useful uh, uh, insight has arisen about the 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 quality and uh, frequency of my thought patterns, maybe I will analyze it. But generally speaking, I'm, you know, my training is I just note that I'm thinking, maybe note the kind of thinking, judging, anger, whatever, and then let it go and go back to my breath or whatever it is, is my primary object of meditation. But off the cushion... I think actually the analysis is very helpful, and this is where meditation can be, you know, can lead you to be a better human being, uh, to be much nicer to yourself and to others, which is that you can notice if you're just walking around that you have this habitual pattern, say, of judging people based on how they look. That's a big one. Um, judging people on their skin color, on 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 your guesses about their socioeconomic status uh, on on their gender. And uh, and that's just an interesting thing to notice. And I think a, a cognitive, you know, th- th- analysis about why you're thinking these ways um, can sort of decouple you from uh, um, your unconscious biases. Uh, and unconscious in the kind of stories you're habitually telling yourself. Um, so I think that's a, a long, perhaps unskillful way of saying, to me, I don't see a conflict. And it can be a little, I can imagine where it will get confusing in terms of how to deal with your thinking processes during meditation. But when you're not meditating and you're just trying to be as mindful as possible in the rest of your life, I actually think that's a, a great time to to bring to bear some of the skills that we learn in either traditional therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. So there may be mental health experts out there who are screaming at their uh, at me right now because I've messed up that answer. But I, I, I think I think I've given you the right answer. Um, but somebody else should leave me a voicemail and tell me if I've screwed up. Uh, OK, voicemail number two. Hey, Dan, big fan. Uh, you and Sam Harris, your brother from another mother, were the primary influences for me to start in meditation practice a couple years back. And now, two and a half years later, I have a regular daily practice. So thanks for that. Uh, two somewhat related questions. First, when you speak about uh, mindfulness meditation, you tend to describe it as focusing on the breath. And then when you get distracted, just noticing and coming back to the breath. It seems to me, based on my reading of Buddhism and mindfulness meditation, that's, that's almost more of a concentration practice that you're describing than a mindfulness practice. I'm wondering if you could speak a little about the kind of next step in mindfulness practice, maybe kind of expanding your awareness to notice uh, whatever you're experiencing and not just uh, the breath and coming back to it. Second question I'm curious in your study of Buddhism if you've come across a practice called Chitanupasana. Um, I know you advocate for mindfulness meditation, which is a direct uh, derivative of Vipassana practice, but uh, I've come across and some teachers have recommended to me a Chitanupasana practice, which I think is something uh, along the lines of uh, awareness of awareness itself, which is extremely confusing. Um, so just curious if you know about that and if you could speak to that and the differences between that and Vipassana. Thanks again. 
Okay, well, there's a, there's a lot there. Um, so on the first question, yes, when I talk about the meditation for beginners, I really try to whittle it down to its basics, which is sit with your eyes closed. If, if you don't want to have your eyes closed, you can keep them open a little bit if you want, uh, and try to bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out, and then when you get distracted, start again. And again and again and again, because you will get distracted a million times. And that's not a problem or a failure. That is just the nature of the mind. And the whole game of meditation is to notice when you become distracted and start again. And why is that a victory rather than a failure? It's a victory because when you see how crazy you are, uh, you are less likely to be owned by it. Um, so uh, you are correct when when you say that the, when I describe the basic instructions for meditation – it can come off as just a concentration practice by which you are training mostly your ability to stay on on task, which is to stay with your breath, the repeated exercise of trying to focus on one thing at a time, getting lost, starting again, getting lost, starting again, boosts your ability to concentrate. But there is, um, and, and again, I know I do this a lot of sort of apologizing for my lack of experience, and I, I want to do it again because uh, I can only speak from, I am not, uh, you know, as I've said a million times, um, a meditation teacher, I can only sort of regurgitate to the best of my memory what I've been taught. Um, but, but there is a lot of mindfulness in that, A. Uh, so what, it's in the moment that you see you've become distracted. You see what's distracted you, and you let it go. Uh, that is, and by let it go, I mean you just you don't get sucked up into it, or you you actually may notice you've already been sucked up into whatever story uh, you're telling yourself in that moment, or whatever pain in your body you're feeling, and then the stories you're telling about the the pain in the body. But seeing all of that, seeing how the mind works in those moments that. You are sucked up into a story and it feels a certain way. Um, just seeing that can create the other big skill of meditation. So there's concentration and then there's mindfulness. And mindfulness is the skill of knowing what's happening in your mind right now without getting carried away by it. And so even in those basic, basic instructions, there is this other skill of mindfulness. But then, of course, you know, very quickly in a, in a, even in an early meditation practice, you move beyond the basic instructions as I, as I often recount them. And, and bear in mind, the reason why I recount them the way I do is just because I'm often talking very, I'm trying to rapidly describe the practice to large groups of uninitiated people. So that's why I talk about it the way I do. But the other, move that a lot of meditation teachers will tell you to do in an early practice is if you're getting distracted, um, when you're getting distracted by something uh, persistent like a, a powerful emotion or, or uh, a, a feeling in your body of restlessness or discomfort, then the move is to turn into that, to, to make that the object, that's the technical term, uh, the the other way to say it is the focus of your meditation. Meditate on that. So say it's a pain in your knee. You might just turn, turn instead of focusing on your breath, which may be difficult if you've got a really strong pain in your knee, bring your full attention to the feeling of that pain in your knee. And there's a lot to be learned there that would that can build your mindfulness muscles. You will see that the pain is constantly shifting and moving. The lesson of that is that everything is impermanent. Nothing is solid and uh, everlasting. Uh, you will also see that the mind tells all sorts of stories about the pain in your knee. My God, this is just going to get worse, and I'm, I'm never going to be able to do this, and I'm actually never going to be able to meditate. Therefore, I'm never going to get the mental skills that I need in order to succeed, and then I'm going to live under a bridge. Uh, so that's a, a, a mental process known as propuncha, which is this sort of movie making we do that usually ends up in a very in a horrific ending. All of this is, again, just falls under the category of mindfulness, which is, again, just the skill of knowing what's happening in your mind without getting carried away by it, being able to see your various mental processes without being owned by them without necessarily taking the bait and acting on them. Just because you experience anger doesn't mean you need to act on it. Uh, 
So, yeah, uh, I, I think it's a great question, and I, I, I hope I've made clear why I generally describe the beginning instructions the way I do. But I think, A, there's a lot of um, mindfulness baked right into them, properly understood. And B, there are simple moves one can make um, that are not, you know, dramatic variations of those um, uh, of those basic instructions that will really take it from a pure concentration practice to a pure mindfulness practice. But I think also one thing, last thing to say, is that the it's important you, you, it's hard to do much mindfulness if you have no concentration. So it's important in the early days of meditating to really build your uh, some mental stability so that you, you get you get a sense of what's going on in your head um, with some clarity, uh, and then that allows you to to break it down and um, see how it's changing and and see how it it uh, it produces this sort of proliferating thought process and all of the things that you, we do under mindfulness, which, uh, you know, is a kind of self-awareness that really can change the way you relate to the world. The second question I can give a short answer to because I've never heard of that term. I did briefly while you were – what was the term again? It was Chitanupasana, uh, which definitely sounds like a Buddhist term. Um, I had never heard it before. Um, I quickly like did a rapid Google while you were talking, um, and I don't. It's it, it, it's translated as contemplation on the mind. Um, so I can say a little bit about contemplation of the mind. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how well I'm going to state this because I've never really talked about it before. But much of what we do in meditation is is uh, we're um, paying attention to objects, um, what we call objects in meditation. So usually one very common object is the breath. But also we can pay attention to objects like emotions and uh, physical sensations. Um, so that's generally the, the, the pose we're in in meditation. We're looking at something. And in that, there's a kind of duality. It's us looking at something. Um, the the um, A very interesting move to make in meditation is to turn the lens around and look at what is the mind that is knowing these things. So one exercise that my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, often recommends, which I've found to be incredibly useful and interesting, is close your eyes and listen to all the sounds uh, that are available to you, that are audible to you right now. Um, And then ask yourself, what is hearing? Where is the quote-unquote me who's hearing everything? And you won't find anything because there's nothing to find. Uh, and that not finding is a really interesting and healthy process. So the argument goes, and I've found it to be uh, very much so myself. You, you are bumping up against a fundamental mystery of the universe, which is the mystery of consciousness. We know that the lights are on for us. We know that that we're aware of um, whatever we're aware of right now, that, of the, hearing my voice or seeing whatever's in front of you, if you have sight, um, feeling uh, your uh, body in whatever position it happens to be in right now. We know that we are, that the, we are receiving data from our various senses. What we don't know is, and what scientists have never been able to figure out is, who or what is knowing it. And that is, so for me, the contemplation of the mind is an incredibly interesting thing on many levels. And one of the other things it does, aside from being interesting intellectually, is that it can, over time, sort of break down this sense of solidity we have around ourselves. And this fiction, really, on one level this fiction of the self, you know, on one level, of course, we have a self. We have to put our pants on in the morning and, and make dentist appointments, et cetera, et cetera. But on some deeper level, there isn't really a solid self in there. And seeing that fiction can sort of get you to declench a little bit because that fiction of that there is some you in there that you need to uh, defend and protect all the time can uh, can help you live with a little bit more ease. 
Man, good questions this weekend. I, I really wish, I, I really hope I didn't screw them up. Um, if you want to call and ask me other questions that I struggle to answer, you should. Uh, the number is available in the show notes of this podcast, so you can just poke around in, a little bit in there, and there's a phone number. Call, leave me uh, voicemails, and uh, leave me a message, ask me a question, or tell me how badly I've screwed up the answers to the foregoing questions. All right. Thank you very much for that, guys. Really appreciate it. Let's get to this week's guest, um, Stephanie Sarkis. Uh, I really enjoyed this. We did it, actually. This is one of the rare ones where we did it remotely. She is uh, she's based in Florida, um, and she uh, she called in. Um, we don't usually do that, but I really wanted to have her on the show. And Stephanie is um, a specialist in the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, or ADD, as it's sometimes called. She's written a bunch of books on it. Um, she uh, also treats uh, children, adolescents, and grown-ups with the condition. Uh, she writes for Psychology Today and the Huffington Post. Um, she also works with patients with anxiety and autism. So she's got a lot to say and a lot to say about uh, how meditation has helped her with the, with uh, attention issues and how it might help you, whether you have full-blown ADHD or just like the rest of us struggle to stay focused on any one thing at a time. So here she is, Stephanie Sarkis. So here's my traditional first question. How did you get into meditation? I was doing research on non-medication treatments for ADHD and saw the, the data showed it really helped with ADHD. So then I started uh, recommending it to my clients and then I started doing it and because I have ADHD uh, and it's helped pretty much everybody that I've worked with. So pretty powerful stuff. And well, I usually do more mindfulness stuff because uh -huh. people with ADHD, you know, like you can meditate while you're doing things and it seems to be a little more ADHD friendly. Say, say more about that. Because people listening sure. may not know too much about sort of different kinds of meditation. Uh, okay, so mindfulness meditation, you're meditating while you're doing things. Uh, for instance, uh, eating uh, mindfulness practices, you just sit and focus on your food. You don't do anything else. You turn off the TV, you don't look at your phone, you don't read the paper. You just focus on your food and you chew your food. It's usually about 20 bites per chew, but for people I work with ADHD, I do more like, like 10 or 15 chews. Uh, and uh, people have found that they are eating less food and still feeling uh, satiated or full. Uh, they're also gravitating towards healthier proteins and fresh fruits and fresh vegetables. Uh, because when you're just focusing on your food, sometimes people realize the food they're eating they don't even really like. So they start changing up what they're eating and they start eating healthier. So it's it's pretty powerful. Huge problem for me. I mean, I've been meditating for a minute, you know, for a while, and mm -hmm. I mindlessly eat all the time. But anyway, we'll talk about that later uh, because I want to stay on you for a second. Um, but my, just in terms of mindfulness meditation, you can do it while you're doing things. You can do anything mindfully, but you can also do it in a mm -hmm. seated, formal, eyes closed practice, which I imagine you were exactly. also doing. Right. Yeah. It's very versatile like that. You can do it in any type of format. It's basically just focusing on the breath, inhale and exhale. And then when you get lost, which you will a million times, start over. Right. Right. You just let the thoughts pass and then you keep going. So how long ago did you start doing it? I would say probably about 10, 15 years ago, I started doing it and started looking at it as a treatment for people with ADHD and also depression, anxiety. And the research for ADHD came out probably about the last five years or so, a lot of data accumulating about the effectiveness of it. So, uh, And it's one of those things that's got a, a real high return on investment. You know, you take... Uh, just you know, five, ten minutes out of your day, and you can get beneficial effects. In fact, even changing uh, your brain structure and your brain chemistry just by uh, meditating. So, t tell me about the effect on you. Well, well, let me start with. Let me start by just pulling back for a second. Define mm -hmm. ADHD. Sure. ADHD uh, is an issue with inhibition of behavior and also motivation. So uh, in your frontal lobes of your brain, you have the executive functions. And those are things like organizing, uh, thinking ahead, planning, uh, cognitive flexibility. In other words, changing up what you're doing. Uh, and also hyperfocus can be an issue with ADHD. So when you have ADHD, your executive functions are impaired. So you have difficulty with staying organized. You have difficulty uh, with impulsive decision making, uh, maybe spending too much money. Uh, you have issues with uh, being so focused that you somebody will call your name. You don't even realize what's going on. Uh, so that's what it looks like when you have ADHD. So that's the frontal lobe dysfunction. And so you had been dealing with this your whole life? 
Yes. And mm-hmm. what, what flavor of it? Because you said there, there are a lot of ways it can manifest. Sure. Yeah, I have the uh, the uh, combined type. So the inattentive type is is more forgetfulness, losing items, uh, difficulty with getting motivated. The uh, hyperactive impulsive type is interrupting. It's uh, feeling like you have to be on the go all the time. Like you don't have an inner kind of calm. And so what I have is is the the type that you have both. So the combined type, inattentive and hyperactive impulsive. Two great tastes that taste great together. I would imagine. <laughs> It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a I, lot of fun. I can fun. only imagine. So, so what, how did it how did it show up for you? How was how disruptive was it in your life? Because you you I, you're a like a big big time you know author and and uh, and therapist, so it couldn't have messed you up too badly, right? Well, first, my my mom was a special ed teacher. My dad was an attorney, so I was behavior modified from an really early age, and I could not argue for a later curfew. So um, I think my parents gave me enough structure, but also gave me a little bit of freedom. So I think that kept me on track for a while. Uh, when I noticed that it that I noticed that I was thinking differently than other people's when I got to college. So my friends would sit there and, and study for three hours straight, and I had no idea how they were doing this. I was wandering around the library. I memorized all the stacks of books. In graduate school, I took classes I really enjoyed, but I could not sit through them. I had a deal worked out with my professor that I could get up and leave anytime I, I wanted to and just walk around and come back and sit. So that's when I realized that you know, if I'm going to a class for three hours I really like and I'm having a hard time sitting still, maybe it's time to you know, get treatment for it. And so that was about, I don't think I was 23 when I got diagnosed. So this is, sounds, I was being somewhat facetious when I said how bad could it be. Um, but it mm-hmm. sounds like it was, it's pretty bad. It can be, yeah. Um, people with ADHD, they not only have a higher rate of, uh, of anxiety, but they also have a higher rate of depression and suicide as well. Um, you can have even sleep disturbances with ADHD. So it's an all-encompassing disorder. It impacts school, it impacts uh, you know, work, home life, social, just even how you interact with the world around you makes a huge difference. And so how did that show up for you? Did you, was anxiety and depression, were those problems? I've I'm always kind of, I've always been a little bit of an anxiety person. And from reading your book, I I kind of understood what you were talking about. You know that you've had kind of this underlying current of anxiety, so I relate to that. Um, luckily, I think that kept the ADHD in check because when you have anxiety, your inhibition in your brain kind of shuts off your impulsivity stuff a little bit. So I think that that kind of helped me in check. And again, parents that watch me like a hawk help too. Um, so. Uh, it was when I really had to do multitasking and setting up my own study schedule and uh, keeping my own place clean and organized that that's when I started to kind of hit a wall with things because I was able to compensate up to a certain point and then it wasn't covering me anymore. What impact did the meditation have on you? What it did is that I noticed, so basically at 23, I got on medication. I got on stimulant medication. I noticed that my medication actually works better when I meditate. Uh, so I started meditating probably about um, a year or two after I started medication. Uh, and I've noticed that I'm, I'm a hand picker. Like I pick at my cuticles, and I don't do that anymore. I know you can't see me on camera. but um, I can actually. You, you can't. Okay, I can see you. Fingers. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the listeners can't. But for some reason, you, uh, this is the first time I've done a remote interview where I can actually see you. Uh, you can't see me which oh, is super cool. creepy but anyway nice. i can see your cuticles <laughs> from a distance so yeah so these are yeah see so i don't pick at them anymore um i've also found that i uh am more likely to stop and think about something before i say it so medication doesn't take care of all your adhd you know because you're still somewhat adhd i would say probably it decreases my adhd by about 60 mm, percent. so the remaining 40 percent, you know that's where i have to kind of monitor uh, and make sure that I'm thinking about something before I do it or that I'm really focused on driving. Uh, and especially if your medication wears off, then the ADHD kind of comes back with a vengeance sometimes. So I've noticed that when I meditate, I tend to stay more in the present moment because when you have ADHD, you, you know, that concept of monkey brain and meditation, uh, when you have ADHD, it's like you have super monkey brain. You've got thoughts flying in and out and meditation makes it so that you only have a few thoughts coming in and out rather than a whole bunch of them at the same time. But does it make meditation itself harder? I, yeah, it gets tricky. So that's why I usually recommend mindfulness meditation because when I talk to people about doing, uh, you know, quote unquote standard meditation, uh, the idea for someone with ADHD to sit or lay down uh, is 
kind of, it's really kind of difficult for people. Uh, so the concept of mindfulness where you could be walking and meditating or eating and meditating or cooking and meditating, that tends to have more appeal for people. Uh, what I've noticed when people do meditation, meditation, uh, when they have ADHD, if they can stick through about three 15-minute sessions are pretty good to go, and they'll stick with it a long time. But uh, otherwise, the mindfulness practice has really helped. Again, the idea that you can move around, which is kind of whole, you know, the whole thing with ADHD is that need to move. So mindfulness, again, you know, that kind of caters to that kind of uh, restlessness piece. So are you able to do extended seated meditation? Is that a part of your daily life? I tend to do the mindfulness part. I have done uh, seated meditation. Um, I... It's tricky because again, you know, if I'm on medication, it's a totally different form of meditation than when I'm off. Uh, when I'm on medication, I can sit and meditate this the kind of again, quote unquote, standard way uh, for a period of time. Uh, off medication, not so easily. So I can usually I can do it for like maybe five ten minutes. Uh, with the mindfulness practice, I can do that with or without medication. It works pretty well. Uh, why do you go on and off medication? So it wears out of your system. So uh, when you take uh, stimulant medication, if you take the long-acting kind that lasts all day, it usually wears off. Like if you take it at 8 a.m., wears off around 3 or 4 p.m. So it doesn't stick with you the whole time. So uh, so afterwards, you know, you're still ADHD when your medication wears off. So uh, medication makes it so that your neurons communicate more effectively in the frontal lobe of your brain. So when you're off medication, your neurons kind of go back to business as usual, and it's tricky to... Uh, really focus uh, on meditation when you don't have medicine in your system. That's been my experience anyway. I've always been confused as somebody who doesn't have ADHD, why you would put somebody on a stimulant because it seems like ADHD, I mean, H is hyperactivity. Right. Yeah. It kind of doesn't make sense when you think of the term uh, stimulants. Uh, stimulants actually stimulate the uh, neurons to communicate more effectively. So that's where the whole stimulant piece comes in. But yeah, it is kind of an odd name to give something to someone that you want them to calm down. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of, a, kind of a misnomer in a lot of ways. But yeah, it, uh, it helps boost dopamine and norepinephrine in your brain. And when you're, you have ADHD, you're low in those brain chemicals. So it helps get those chemicals back up to kind of where they should be. You know, I said I don't have ADHD, but I mean, I don't know. I never got tested. I will say that I was a bad student in high school. I definitely have trouble mm -hmm. sitting still to this day. And, you know, when I have a big project like writing a book or writing a big story for Nightline, I, I you know, I, I work at the standing desk both at home and at the office. I get okay. I have a lot of trouble, you know, kind of staying focused on things. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't. You know, people, people say all the time, <clears throat> it's like kind of a modern trope even that people say, oh, you know, I'm super ADHD. Um, it's become mm -hmm. a little like um, almost a throwaway thing that people say to describe themselves. How do you know when somebody actually has it or whether they're just, you know, having trouble focusing on, as a, on a gar garden variety level? Sure, because we all have symptoms of anxiety, depression, ADHD at some point in our lives. But it's when it gets to the point where with ADHD that you're – performance isn't matching your ability. There's a gap in there. So uh, you have 160 IQ, but you got B's and C's at school. You're not working your potential. Uh, you uh, really enjoy what you do for a living, but you just can't seem to put it together to, you know, to write stories on time. Or, or uh, you find that when you're talking to your spouse that, that you're not fully listening to them, uh, and it's created conflict at home. So it's where there's it really impacts quality of life. Again, when there's a gap between what you should be able to do what you're doing. And if you look at brain function, when you have ADHD, your brain is about two-thirds that of someone without ADHD as far as neural development. And, and basically what I mean by that is that when you have ADHD, you sometimes are one to three years younger behavior-wise than your chronological age. So if you're working with, well, if I'm working with someone that's 20 and in college, it's more like they're 15 or 16 in college. Wow. Or... So, so that kind of, so you may find that sometimes when you're talking with people with ADHD that seems like they're a little bit younger and you can't really kind of figure out why, it may be brain development so that your neurons just aren't as connected as someone without ADHD. Does that make sense? To the extent that I'm able to understand anything scientific, yeah. <laughs> Much more of our conversation right after this quick break. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. 
There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. by Indeed, used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. You work mostly with adults, right? I do. Yeah, college age on up. Yep. And um, how widespread a phenomenon do you think this is? And in, in, in what about the complaints that we often hear that this is it's overdiagnosed and, the, and they're handing out Adderall like candy? Sure. Um, it's all it's about four point four percent of people in the U.S. So I think that's about 17 million people. Uh, and as far as it being overdiagnosed, I get asked that a lot. And it's actually underdiagnosed. Uh, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago that said that only 10 percent of people that think they have symptoms of ADHD, only 10% of them come to see a, a mental health professional for diagnosis. So that means that you know 90% of people with ADHD tend not to get treatment or be diagnosed with it. And it leads to a six times higher rate of substance abuse without treatment, uh, can leads to higher suicide rate, leads to uh, you know just, again, this loss of potential, this, this chronic feeling of, I should be able to do more, but I, but I can't. And and the way just to just to amplify the point you were making before, because I suspect a lot of people are listening to this and trying to figure out, like, okay, do I fall in this bucket? Uh, The way to really sort of uh, figure out or one one gauge for you is, is there a big delta, a big gap between what your capacity is and, and, and what your performance is? Right. Like in school, did you get comments in your report card like doesn't work to potential difficulty staying in seat? Uh, doesn't work to expectations, doesn't complete assignments. Did you go blank when you took tasks? Those are some of the things you look for on report cards. Uh, when you get into the work field, uh, doesn't complete work tasks, doesn't complete tasks to ability, doesn't follow multi-step directions. Those are some of the things you'll see on performance evaluations that, that may be a tip-off to ADHD. So if I would... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, people in TV news, uh, a lot of them have ADHD because you tend to be gravitated towards jobs that are high pressure, high stress, uh, because people with ADHD do beautifully when it's a crisis situation. It's the day-to-day living. It's the unloading and loading the dishwasher that drives them crazy. So uh, you'll see people in uh, in working in ERs. Uh, You'll see uh, people that are firefighters. You'll see people that are salespeople. So you'll see people that, that really thrive under pressure. Pressure. So that's another tip off uh, that you might have ADHD is if you're if you really seek that kind of stimulation uh, from your environment. Right. You said actually after reading my book, you ha- you were able to do some sort of <laughs> diagnosis on me. You said this before I'm we a started. Bit, yeah. Yeah. What well, would tell me? Tell me. <laughs> 
Well, what I picked up on is that first year in TV news, uh, my undergrad degree is in telecom, so I was going to work at CNN and wound up being a therapist. But um, I noticed that in the news field, you see a lot of people running around doing stuff, and you have to do things you know, on split second. And people with ADHD do beautifully with that. Absolutely amazing. So, uh, so I, I've noticed that. Um, also, uh, so are you saying that you, you think I have ADHD? I would have to evaluate you. <laughs> Sir, but, but, but you would say I would be a candidate for evaluation. I'd say yeah. I come down to Tampa, and you know we can talk. <laughs> but yeah, and I you you have a hard time sitting still, and um, yeah. So it's uh, there are some things I picked up on, but it could be you know that like I said, you know, you also said you have a, kind of a low level of anxiety, so it could be a little bit of that. Could be other stuff that you didn't put in your book. I don't know, uh, but. Overall, some of the stuff had a flavor of ADHD to it. Interesting. But again, we all have those symptoms. But the fact you're in TV news kind of is a little tip off. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. The, the, it, my, my wife uh, is uh, an academic physician, and she mm-hmm. has struggled with some of these issues. I don't want to say too much because I, I don't know how much she wants me to say. But let me just say that she, she chose for a while to go into um, – intensive care work where she was in the Mm -hmm. ICU and a lot of that was about the adrenaline. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I see a lot of people with ADHD working in ICU. So, 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 uh, when you work with your patients and you say, when you drop the M word, you say, Hey, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to recommend you meditate. Do these people who've been dealing with ADHD look at you like you're crazy? Like there's no way I could ever do that. I get that from about a third of people. One third of people are like, let me start now. Can I meditate like, you know, in two seconds from now? Uh, Then I get people that are kind of a little bit quizzical about it. And I get one third of people are like, no way. Uh, and interestingly, I get people sometimes uh, ask me, well, isn't this kind of against like my religion? And I'll say, well, do you do any kind of prayer you recite? Because that's meditation. You're already doing it. Anytime that you're zoning out and just hearing yourself breathe, that's meditation. I would say so that's I zoning. Try to frame I would, it. Just a just slight quibble. I would say mm-hmm. it's zoning in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I like that. I'm going to borrow that now. Can but I steal that from yours. you? Oh, absolutely. Totally no you. attribution okay, necessary. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I noticed that, um, that people have some questions about what exactly it is. Uh, and then people that, that I've worked with will sometimes say, well, I came and sit still for two seconds. And I'll say, no, it's not about the sitting still. It's about the focusing on the inhaling and exhaling. That's, that's it. And uh, people are surprised to know that that's the fundamental process of it is the inhale and exhale. It's not the, the laying still, sitting still. And people with ADHD tend to like doing things really well the first time. Like the first time they go to bat, they want to hit a home run. The first time they sit at the piano, they want to play like Mozart. Uh, and the first time they meditate, they want to reach nirvana and totally empty their brain. And I'll tell them that there's uh, – even people meditating for years find it impossible to totally empty their brain. That's, the, that's not the point so much as just focusing on the inhale and exhale. And then when you so get lost, again, starting the, again. Yes, so the, yes, the, the point exactly. is, I'm, I'm telling this people all the time, the point, yeah, I'm saying this to people all the time, the point is that is, is not to reach some sort of special state. It is to be in the muck with the craziness of your own mind and to see it clearly without being yanked around by it. Why is that useful? Because in the rest of your life, when your thinking mind offers you up terrible ideas, you're better able to surf them and not be owned by them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And the people I work with, sometimes, again, they're in really high intensity careers and, and they'll say to me, but if I meditate, won't I lose my edge? Mm-hmm. Won't I not perform as well? And I'll say, no, actually, it increases it. It increases your ability to do your job effectively. And that's really kind of mind blowing to them that you can do meditation and still be able to function at your job and, and actually perform better than you did before. Yeah. People think they're not going to be go, go, go. They're not going to be a, mm-hmm. a, a ambitious, aggressive, aggressive in the in the not but in the in the pejorative um but actually when you stop wasting energy on useless uh distractions or useless Mm -hmm. anger and being yanked around by your emotions and you're better able to stay on task etc etc that is all a massive value add in terms of your professional Mm -hmm. goals Right, right. People think they're getting kind of a, when they meditate, they're getting a smaller piece of the pie. Like they're like they're they're kind of shortening their skills. And in fact, I'm like, well, no, it makes a bigger pie. You know, it makes a bigger amount of brain space that you can use to do what you want to do. And again, yeah, you're not 
thinking too far in the past or too far in the future. You're thinking of just here and now, and your productivity increases a tremendous amount when you're really in the stuff you're in. When you focus on what you're doing, you completely 100% focus. It's amazing how much more you can channel into your work. You access parts of your brain, I would argue, not not in a scientific sense, but you access parts of your brain that you wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, you put more of your, I guess, your heart and soul into your work, and that makes a huge difference. And you know, just doing that one thing can change everything. So you work with college age on up, but do, mm-hmm. so you don't do any work with kids whatsoever? I do, too. Yeah, I work with kids up to teenagers, too. Yeah. And what, what do you say to parents who are really worried about their kids with ADHD and, and how seriously should they be taking mm-hmm. the option of meditation for kids in this context? Does that work? Yes, it does. Actually, there's quite a bit of research out about uh, teenagers uh, and kids uh, practicing meditation and mindfulness meditation, uh, that it actually uh, can do some brain structure differences. It improves the the connections in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, It's been found to decrease an inflammatory agent in the body. So there's all sorts of things that when you start at an earlier age, you get more of the benefits over time. Uh, And studies have found, again, just with kids, you know, just like with adults, it improves uh, symptoms of ADHD, anxiety, and depression. So how do you get them to do it, though? Well, we start out really small. Uh, so I teach kids how to do inhale and exhale. And the way I describe it is you inhale like you're sniffing a flower and you exhale like you're blowing out candles on a birthday cake. And so we practice. And sometimes I'll have the kids lay on the ground. I'll put a stuffed animal on their tummy and we'll practice diaphragmatic breathing. So when they inhale, the stuffed animal goes up. And when they exhale, the stuffed animal goes down. So they have a visual of when they're doing deep breathing, that diaphragmatic breathing. That's so important. So, uh, And also I'll use a bubble wand for real little ones to teach them how to do exhale. They'll, I'll have them exhale, blow out through the bubble wand for a count of five. And again, they may not understand the concept of counting to five, but they know visually how long five minutes are by, by using the bubble wand. So a lot of neat visual cues you can use. I like that. Um, I have a three-year-old that, that could work with him. Uh, uh-huh. So, so uh, I, just a personal story. I... Um, Recently finished writing a book uh, with a co-author, uh, this amazing meditation teacher from Canada named Jeff Warren, and he mm-hmm. has. Uh, so, so the in the book we we uh, the first thing we did was uh, before we started writing was we took a cross-country road trip, and uh, the goal of the trip was to meet people who want to meditate and to help them. Uh, get over the various obstacles they faced to starting a practice. And so we went across the country in this big orange bus, and I really got to know Jeff very well. And, and during that time, he repeatedly referenced the fact that he had ADHD and had struggled with it since he was a kid. And I, you know, I, maybe it's because we live in a culture where people describe themselves as ADHD all the time. I, di- I didn't really take it seriously. Plus, he's, he's such an amazing meditation teacher. It just, I didn't, it didn't, I, I just it didn't land. Let's just say, but mm-hmm. then when we started the writing process, it really <laughs> landed. And um, mm-hmm. what I, you know, he has. I, I I thought ADHD meant that you just can't pay attention to anything. And as you said before, there's a whole kind of range of flavors of it. For him, it's not that he can't pay attention. It's that he gets overly focused and goes yep. into these rabbit holes of so we'd be mm-hmm. you know uh, we'd be writing this book i'm like hey man this is a book for beginners and skeptics and he would want to talk about like deep end buddhist esoterica and he was getting all excited and the book would be a failure if we didn't talk about what blah 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 and i would be i would be wanting to like <laughs> throw myself out a window like because i really respect him and we, we we almost killed each other over over this and it was just over and over again i would point out that he just you know built this tree house in his mind and climbed up into it and lived in it for a while and he would eventually recognize that yes he had done that um, and then uh, ten minutes later, he'd be back in another treehouse. Um, and so it was. It was an incredibly challenging thing for me to deal with. Never mind how hard it was mm-hmm. for him, of course. Um, right. I, any thoughts on any, all the stuff I just blurted out? Sure. Yeah. Uh, people with ADHD don't think in a linear fashion. They don't go A B C D. They go A R Q two. <laughs> they go all over the place. And if you don't have ADHD, it can be really hard to track that kind of thought process, and especially 
when you're doing some kind of structured project. Uh, so for people with ADHD, it really helps to get parameters put in place. So for instance, like chapter one, okay, we're going to knock out chapter one by, you know, next Tuesday. Okay. Uh, chapter two, I need you to do an outline for me by, you know, Wednesday. So, uh, it really helps to give people parameters that they can work under because it's very difficult for people with ADHD to come up with their own parameters, uh, their own rules for, for working. Does that, that make sense? It's so funny you say that because that actually ended up being the solution. When I imposed structure mm-hmm. on him, he mm-hmm. was able to do really well. And in his defense, um, the nonlinearity of his thinking is big part of, of his strength, that he is mm-hmm. a brilliant guy and able to connect ideas that heretofore have been disconnected. And he's unbelievably creative and energetic. So there are lots of upsides to his condition. Right. And you're able to channel that into productivity. So that was a great idea to give him those parameters. Yeah, well, it was not a great idea. It was born out of utter desperation. You know, like, I didn't know <laughs> what to do. still a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I think a lot of people don't know that, that ADHD can manifest in many different ways. Yes, and hyper-focusing is one of them. Uh, so people will sometimes get into a meditative state and nothing will tear them away from it. They could have a fire alarm going off and they don't hear it. So uh, that's one of those things about the regulation of the brain is that hyper-focus is just as much a symptom as lack of focus. And so the hyper-focus actually can be helpful with when doing meditation because you can kind of channel yourself into it. But the trick is with ADHD is you have to want to do it to get hyper-focused. Right, right. You have to you have to have that motivation to do it. And motivation is the part that's off in ADHD. So it's kind of a catch-22. You know, you want to do it, but you can't always motivate yourself to do it. So tell me about some of the books you've written on this subject. Sure. Yeah. I've written a book uh, on non-medication treatments for ADHD. It's called Natural Relief for Adult ADHD, Treatments to be Used with or Without Medication. Uh, that's a whole chapter in, on, on meditation, mindfulness, talking about the research behind it, uh, user-friendly ways to do this. Because again, you're talking about the esoterica part of it. And I think that sometimes people, uh, it needs to be broken down to language we can all understand uh, and easy to do techniques. Like again, just focusing on your breathing, you know, inhale for five, exhale for 10. And that's, that's a practice of meditation. So another book's 10 Simple Solutions to Adult ADD. And I write about meditation, uh, also uh, jobs that are ADHD friendly, uh, setting up structured schedule, how to communicate effectively with your spouse or partner, because that gets to be a big issue too. You know, higher rate of divorce uh, in people with ADHD. Uh, so also a book on uh, making the grade with ADD, that's on college and ADHD. So a um, chapter on mindfulness and meditation and that, and also talk Talking about again, how do you set up your structured schedule? You know, in high school, you have you know, you know where you're supposed to be seven hours out of the day, and your parents get called as soon as you don't show up for class. So now you're in college, and nobody's reminding you to wake up for class. Nobody's telling you when to study, and that's when a lot of people with ADHD kind of hit the wall. Their compensation techniques and that parameter that was put on them no longer exists, and it gets really tricky for people to function. Does does you? In your daily life, being exposed to so many other people with the same condition, is that useful or or a challenge for you in terms of managing your own condition? I find it actually helpful because I think I can meet people where they're at a little bit better. Um, again, being on medication helps, <laughs> but uh, I think also uh, I can understand that nonlinear thinking process and also help people channel it. I think that's one of the biggest parts, like you were saying, the parameters you, you put on your co-author, uh, again, you know, how do we set those parameters? Because your brain doesn't want to go in those parameters. So how can you set up these kind of uh, kind of blinders, sort of, horse blinders, uh, to stay on the track of, of completing your work? So that's a lot of what I do is help people get that structure in place and then get effective treatment. And again, one of those uh, effective non-medication treatments is meditation. I mean, medication overall, according to research, is the most effective treatment but meditation does have a lot of data behind it as, a, as the most, one of the most effective non-medication treatments. But in that answer, you talked about how having ADHD can help you be a better therapist. I just wonder, like, mm-hmm. being exposed to all of, uh, of all of the pathologies, mm-hmm. given that you're also oh, dealing yeah. with your own, does it make the challenges mm-hmm. greater for you? Because this is still an issue in your life. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I found that, um, it actually enriches parts of my life, uh, because I can see, um, I love working with people and I can see, uh, you know, their journey through life and their progression. And, uh, that to me kind of, it, it makes me appreciate life more, I think, uh, because I see the different paths people have gone on and some of the adversity people have gone through. Um, so I think it actually, I think it actually enhances my life rather than makes the ADHD kind of worse. Yeah, it does. Okay. What, okay. What are, in terms of, you know, the challenges you continue to face as a result of having ADHD, what, what, are, the, mm-hmm. what are the most prominent ones now? Uh, let's see, showing up on time. Really? Uh, so, yeah, so I, I showed up at the studio a half hour early. So what happens Today. with ADHD is you wind up, yeah, oh, yeah, I was here early. <laughs> so, um, I, so what you do is you kind of overcompensate for stuff. So I... I'll show up kind of super early for things. Uh, and again, medication makes us more likely to stay on time because you do, you actually do more time estimation the correctly when you're on medication. So, but yeah, I'll show up early for stuff or, you know, I, my friends just know that I'm going to be running a little late for things. Uh, so uh, part of it is just saying to people, hey, I run a little late. Yeah, it doesn't matter what time I leave. I'm going to run a little late. Um, so that that's one of the things I notice. Also, I lose stuff all the time. I have those little tile trackers. I have them on everything I own. <laughs> so I should probably get stock and tile because I have like eight tile things, you know, so I can find everything wherever it is. I have GPS trackers. Um, I, uh, I also, again, meditation, first thing in the morning, do that. Um, there's a mindful driving. So I focus on the steering wheel, feels in my hands. I focus on cues on the road. Um, also, uh, holding a thought and thinking about it before I say it. Uh, much easier to get on medication. Without medication, you got to really make a concerted effort to think about what you're saying and if, if what you're saying is actually what you mean to say. One of the trickiest parts of ADHD is what you're thinking and what comes out of your mouth can be two different things. So, so that gets tricky, too. You have to monitor a little more. So I would say that's probably the biggest things I notice. Um, and also, again, I have kind of a healthy dose of anxiety, so it kind of keeps the ADHD a little bit more at bay, I think, than, than people that don't have anxiety with ADHD. If I could wave a wand right now and, and quote, unquote, cure your ADHD, would you want me to do it, or would you say that actually you, the, there are the benefits outweigh the costs? You know, that's tough because there are some things that I really like. Like, I tend to be pretty creative, uh, and I tend to uh, like doing a bunch of different varied tasks. Or, you know, oh, you want to go on a trip somewhere? Sure, why not? You know, I don't, I don't think ahead about that stuff. Uh, but the parts about getting to places on time, that would be kind of nice. So if I could do kind of like a half and half, like if I could just improve the stuff that – you know, I'd like to improve and then keep the stuff I like. So I'm going to answer that with, yeah, uh, some things and not other things, <laughs> just to make things more complicated. Yeah, I don't have that kind of wand. I only have the wand. That's- <laughs> Aww. <laughs> so um, this has been great. Is that I have learned a ton. Uh, are there questions that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? No, I think it's really important to let people know, though, that that meditation is accessible to everyone. Uh, again, it's it's a really high return on your investment. You don't need to spend any money to do it. You can do it anywhere. Uh, you don't necessarily need someone teaching how to do it. Uh, and the benefits of it are, you know, according to research and just my anecdotal evidence is that it's very effective. So, again, it's one of those treatments that uh, for what you – put into it, you get a lot more out of it. And if people want to follow you, do you have a website or social media that you do? Yeah, it's stephaniesarkis.com. So S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-S-A-R-K-I-S.com. That's also my Twitter handle. Uh, I'm also on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Stephanie Sarkis. Uh, And also there's a contact page on my website. If anybody has any questions for me, I'm happy to answer those. This has been super useful. I really appreciate your time and your good humor and your punctuality. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. 
in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.